The reading today is taken from Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11 and finishing at verse 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we sit, let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that you will speak to us this morning through your word. And help our hearts and minds to be attentive. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we come to our sixth sermon um, in the series, Jesus and His Church. Uh, this is a series we've been running at the first, uh, on the first Sunday of the month, the 11.15 service. So it's the sixth sermon, it being June, and we've now come to Uh, the church as God's dwelling place. And I want to begin with what is a child's question. And the question is simply, well, where is God? Where can I make contact with him? Or in more adult language, if God is transcendent, is he everywhere? Or is he to be found in specific places? Now, there's a tendency for humankind to... Uh, seek to locate their God in particular places. So that's characteristic, for example, of Hindu temples in the East, the belief that the gods are present uh, and their presence is symbolized by images. The alternative is to attempt to locate God in sacred writings. So we have, for example, the Quran for Islam or the Torah for Judaism. Either way, there is a danger that seeking to 
They're seeking to domesticate God uh, in the confines of a temple or a book. Keep him under control or keep her under control. And Christians, I fear, are not innocent of these strategies. A little while ago, we were visiting the ruins of Fountains Abbey in Yorkshire, uh, which is a building of extraordinary power, even as a ruin. And it reflected a belief that God was present there in some very special way. At the other extreme, some very conservative Christians want to locate God only in the Bible and are unwilling to allow his presence in, for example, charismatic experiences. And I think the issue of where God is to be found is the subject of the last three verses of our reading. That's Ephesians 2, 20 to 22. Now, as Sarah read it to you, you may have noticed there was a kind of sudden change of metaphor around about verse 20. In verse 19, as we discovered in the previous sermon of the series, Paul uses images drawn from human society. So he refers to the citizens of God's people, where people is to be understood in the sense of a group with common history and cultural identity. And he uses the term members of God's household, meaning the extended family, a social structure based on living and working together with shared values and purposes, bound together by the family name. But very abruptly, the metaphor switches to that of a building, and specifically to that of a temple. And we might say, well, why? Why has he made this sudden change? Now, we know from Acts 19 that Ephesus was renowned for the temple of Diana. This was a massive structure on a hill outside the city. It was, so the commentaries tell me, 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and had 127 white columns, 62 feet high. In the inner sanctuary, there was a many-breasted image of the goddess, was claimed to have dropped from the heavens, and some think it might have been a meteorite. And so it's possible that some naive converts uh, from paganism in the Ephesian church were asking this question. Well, that was where Diana lived. Where does Jesus live? Where is his temple? Or more likely, maybe Paul is continuing the thread of thought in verse 14. Let me remind you of it. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now that's a reference, which we looked at in our last sermon, on the the barrier, the dividing wall. It's a reference to the structure of the Jerusalem temple. It was a wall that excluded non-Jews from entering the temple courts on pain of death. So it's possible that a naive convert from Judaism might also ask the question, where is Jesus' temple? Where does God live now, if not in the temple in Jerusalem? Now, I have to say that Paul's answer to that unstated question must have been very puzzling indeed. Look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. 
foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Now, those who knew the Jerusalem temple knew that the cornerstone was absolutely massive. It was apparently 12 meters in length and a very substantial piece of stone. And it's very hard to imagine how on earth they got it in place without heavy lifting equipment, but leave that to one side. This is something which is huge, massive. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus' life and teaching is the source and strength of all that the apostles and prophets had achieved and were achieving. Now, I think the apostles definitely here refer to the 12 plus Paul and James, the brother of Jesus. Now, commentators on this passage tend to assume that Paul is talking figuratively about the teaching of Jesus and the early Christian community. But that's not supported by the verses. People had, Paul had people in mind, not texts. In March, we looked at the passage in Matthew 16, where Peter tells Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And I think Paul is making the same point here. God's purposes are achieved through his people. And that's not just the great leaders of the church. Look at verse 22. And in him, you too, that is the whole Ephesian church, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The whole point is that every Christian is part of the structure that is being built. Moreover, verse 21, they are joined together. And verse 22, they are built together. Engineers tell us that the failure of even one element in the structure of a building can result in quite serious structural failing. In the church, every member matters for the structural integrity as the church grows. But what is the structure that's being built from these human building blocks. Look again at verses 21 and 22. It's a holy temple in the Lord to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Before we look at this in detail, just first note the astonishing turnaround for Gentile Christians. Formerly, they were completely excluded from the courts of Israel in the Jerusalem temple. But now they're not only, as it were, allowed in, but they are integrated structurally in the, in, in the church. But let's think about the nature of this new temple, the dwelling place of God. I have no doubt that Paul was thinking of the temple in Jerusalem and its uh, predecessor, the tabernacle in the wilderness. Both structures had the Ark of the Covenant, located at the center of the temple in the most holy place. And the Ark contained the two tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments, which was, of course, the basic stipulation of the covenant. Now, what was the Ark? The Ark was a chest of acacia wood, 
It was uh, overlaid with gold. It had a cover or a lid, uh, which was watched over by two gold cherubim, which are human figures with wings. What does this symbolize? It's in the style of a royal throne in the ancient Near East. And so it was understood as God's throne. When the ark was placed in the tabernacle in Exodus 40 and later in Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8, God came in his glory, veiled in a cloud, to take his throne. And this was where God dwelt. So where does God dwell on earth now? Paul's answer to the Ephesians was simply, among you who are God's holy people, his holy temple. And what's the purpose of this new temple? Paul's readers would have been very familiar with the idea that a temple in the Old Testament was a place where sacrifices were offered to atone for sin, to give thanks for God's gifts, to honor God's name, to seek his blessing. In short, to express the worshiper's commitment. St. Peter applies this understanding in his first letter. Um, So this is 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. As you come to him, that is Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You will see that Peter here is using exactly the same metaphor as Paul is using. Again, the concept is that Christians are a living stone, are living stones that make up a new temple, a spiritual house. But he goes beyond that to say that Christians are also making up a new priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Their role is to reflect the holiness of God in their lives, to intercede for humanity before God, and to offer sacrifices. It's not time to go into it here, but these are identified elsewhere in the New Testament as their bodies, Romans 12.1, offerings of money or material goods, Philippians 4.18, and in Hebrews 13, 15 and 16, praise to God and doing good involving personal sacrifice. So what's Paul's answer to the question, where is God to be found? It's not a location such as the Jerusalem temple, nor in the Jewish scriptures, but in the Christian community, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And in that, he's echoing the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. For where two or three come together in my name, 
there am I with them. So what are the implications of this for us? First of all, a point which Andrew, our vicar, has made many times, that it's the gathering of God's people that matters and not the building in which we meet. The buildings are important, but in the end it is the gathering of God's people that counts. Secondly, since God is present by his spirit, and he's present by his spirit now, then we must offer him fitting worship. That is, we must recall to mind what he has done for us in Christ. We must offer him thanks and praise, and we must affirm our commitment to him. One of the great advantages of the liturgy, as in our service of Holy Communion this morning, is that all the elements, all these aspects of our worship of God are fully articulated. But of course that only works if we recognize that his Holy Spirit is with us. And if we are personally engaged and participate, we're not spectators. But thirdly, we need to remember that God is also present by his spirit in our smaller gatherings, in our house groups, when we pray together as husband and wife, as friends, as family, as groups of Christians. And what are the sacrifices we are required to offer? There's this strong emphasis in the epistles on service to others, doing good, sharing our resources. We need to think of street pastors, cut-slow mentors, those who serve in the community emergency food bank. Where Christian people work together in such things, God is present by his spirit. And that is where non-Christians can encounter Jesus in our world. Let's pray. Our Father God, We long to be built together to become a dwelling in which you live by your spirit in every aspect of our worship and our service. In Jesus' name, amen.